All right. Well, thank you all uh, for, for joining. We're so glad to be with Dr. Justin Bailey uh, this morning in our last workshop on uh, the Christian imagination and, uh, and, and Christian faith and how to understand that. Uh, it's been a great few weeks with uh, uh, both the, the first one where we had live with uh, Pastor Justin, as well as the last two weeks of content. Hope you were able to enjoy it as well um, for myself. I thought it was just really great, especially going into that last workshop when things were got to be so much more practical in a, in a new way to, or I mean, a new way, a more engaged way of uh, apologetics and the imagination. So um, again, we're just glad to have uh, Pastor Justin join us. And uh, he is a, if this is your first time joining us, I know some people are hopping on for the first time live uh, this week, but he's a professor, associate pe uh, professor over at Dort University, which is in Iowa, I believe. And uh, we're just, you know, he's been in our church before, he's preached in the past. And again, we're just glad to have this um, FaceTime with him uh, and this space for him to teach us. So I'll hand it off to um, Pastor Justin and I'm just looking forward for your, your, uh, your teaching today. Well, thanks so much, Aram. Uh, thanks to you all who are uh, with us and also those who are watching the recording. It's great to get a chance to connect with you all and hope that you're blessed in some, some way. Your imagination is stimulated and engaged. Um, uh, during during the session, uh, as a, hopefully it has been engaged uh, in the previous three sessions. I want to make sure that I leave some time for questions at the end, but I have probably about 30 minutes or so of content, maybe more, maybe less. Uh, I've been writing about this all week, and so it's very fresh in my mind. So this is, in some ways, some pretty fresh content, um, but also maybe some unpolished content in some other ways, too. So um, just kind of trying it out on you, I guess, uh, so to speak. Um, when we think about the role of the imagination in everyday life and Christian practice, and I want to center it around this question about what does it mean to live a beautiful life? If you, especially if you watch the last session about uh, imaginative apologetics, one of the arguments I made is that really your life is the best apologetic, right? A life that is coherent and um, lived out of generosity and gratitude to the Lord is the best argument for Christian faith, because here you have somebody can can look and see the way that it's, it's embodied in your life. And so I want to talk a little bit about a little bit more about rethinking or reimagining Christian practice um, as the, the goal of living a beautiful life, a life that is in tune with God uh, and, and with God's created order. So I think I'll start with a sort of devotional uh, from Psalm 19, one of my favorite Psalms. Uh, which starts this wonderful way um, about the heavens declaring the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So according to the psalmist, creation is always speaking. And what it's saying is glory. So there's no audible words. That's what uh, verse three says. But he still says, you know, can you not hear what creation is saying? So you go outside and creation is speaking. And it's saying something about God. It's saying something about God's glory. Now, some of you might be familiar with uh, this composer, uh, American composer named John Cage. He's been lauded as one of the most influential composers of the 20th century. And his best known composition is this piece of work written in 1952 called 433. So we're going to listen to 
about five seconds of it. There it is, the playing of 433. Here's the sheet music. It's blank <laughs> because 433 is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And you can go online. I would encourage you to go on YouTube and type in 433 um, John Cage and look at all the different performances of 433. Um, there is a very highly trained orchestra, a full auditorium of people who show up and listen to 433, uh, trained musicians, and they just sit there. And the first time I heard about this, it seemed to me like a mockery of music. And indeed, some people have taken it that way. So you have a heavy metal band that you could watch perform 433. There's a cat that you can watch perform 433. And I thought it was just kind of silly. Um, but, you know, this is a very respected composer. And so I wanted to understand what was going on and, and where Cage was coming from. And what I learned was that Cage loved sound and he wanted to alert his listeners to the reality that sound is always surrounding us. He wanted to give them an experience of silence, but not absolute silence, but the silence filled with listening. And he said, I am always listening to this music, to, to 433. And what he meant was that he was turning his attention to to the world around him and to the sound of uh, that was happening in the midst of the silence. And to those who said, well, it's not music, it's just noise, Cage would say, no, the music is in the sounds that are happening. Now that's interesting because music suggests a composer, it suggests creativity, and it suggests intentionality because without that, uh, it is just noise, uh, raw sense experience without meaning. But what if uh, underneath the noise, there's actually meaning, signal, structure, music? Uh, what if the world is actually full of more meaning and more beauty than we could possibly imagine? What if the sound of the world around us is actually music, not necessarily written by a human composer, but by the God who is the creator and who is actively engaged in this world? What if everything in creation is singing and what it's singing is a song of glory? That's the vision that Psalm 19 has for us, uh, a vision in which the heavens are declaring the glory of God, in which uh, the sky is proclaiming the work of his hands, in which the day is pouring out speech like a waterfall, the night is revealing knowledge, and you don't have to speak any special language, uh, no matter where you live, all you have to have is senses, uh, eyes and ears, um, and the world around you to hear creation speak. And I love Psalm 19 because it's this very powerful prescription for people who believe that God is mostly silent uh, or, or remote or aloof or unavailable. Because Psalm 19 invites us to live in a world that is not characterized by empty space, emptiness, but by excess. Uh, there's so much meaning. There's so much beauty. There's so much to behold. Um, and if we just listen, if we just open our eyes, then we can see it. Now, the interesting thing, though, about Psalm 19 is that the psalmist doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with creation, but he moves from creation to scripture. So he says creation excites our curiosity. But if we stop with creation, then we might worship creation, as some people do. Uh, and so we have to have more than that, because while we might be uh, transfixed with wonder at the natural world, it, we won't necessarily be transformed because the speech of creation is not specific enough. It gives us a, an aesthetic sense, a general sense of the immensity of the creator, but it doesn't tell us his covenantal name. It makes us feel small, perhaps. It may humble us, but it doesn't call us to take up a cross. Uh, it may whet our appetite with awe, uh, but it... Um, 
it doesn't necessarily by itself shape you into the kind of person that God created you to be. And so to renovate you into that sort of person, uh, God speaks to us in a different way. And so he speaks to us through his word. So we read on the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So notice that the speech of creation is described in terms of how loudly and accessibly it speaks, uh, how it's gushing, it's proclaiming, it's pouring out. Whereas the scriptures are described in terms of the effect, the shaping effect that it has uh, on the person who receives it. So it gives light to our eyes. It helps us see clearly. Here again, we have the sense of imagination. And so there's this sense that creation around us is singing the song, this beautiful song about God. And God is singing this song through his word. And so then that leads us to look at ourselves and say, well, why do I feel so out of tune? Uh, with this speech of creation and the speech that's in scripture. And that's exactly where the psalmist goes. The psalmist says, who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. So there's this movement from creation to scripture to now self-examination. Because here's the question. If creation really is overflowing, dripping with beauty, dripping with meaning, dripping with presence, and then the word is shining light everywhere, helping us to see the world as it really is, then why um, is my experience different than that? You know, there are certain points, perhaps, in worship where you really do believe uh, that things are all, everything is possible with God, and then you go back to everyday life, and it's like the glory dissipates. And perhaps if you were with us the first week or you saw the first week, you'll remember that I talked about this need for what I called stronger spells, a way of living with faith that doesn't go away when we leave the doors of the church or when we leave uh, a, a gathering. So why is it that God feels so remote, so far away? And why does it seem like our experience, the experience of people around me, that we walk around and we're not constantly confronted with this beauty? Why don't we hear music? Why do we hear noise? Um, is it possible for us to experience the world of Psalm 19 on a regular basis? Not just to know that it's true, but to actually experience it, to taste and see. And is it possible to create spaces of imaginative hospitality for other people to experience this world that is drenched in glory, even as we wrestle with its brokenness? Those are the sorts of questions that uh, sent me down this track, that sent me back to school, that made me go and, and get a PhD and become a professor, because these were the questions that I was asking. And these questions are not just existential questions, but they are aesthetic questions. Because aesthetics is fundamentally about your felt experience of the world, how you experience the world. It's about your sense of the space that you live in and the possibilities that are available to you. Because in this Psalm, uh, reflection on the glory and order and excess of beauty in creation leads the psalmist to consider his own life and to seek to be in tune with it all. And that's the reason why the psalm ends with this wonderful tuning fork. Um, May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, uh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So there's this sense creation is speaking God is speaking through scripture. I look at myself and find myself out of tune. And so I say, God, will you tune this heart? Will you tune my life uh, so that I can live a life that is beautiful and coherent in keeping with the beauty of everything that you've made?
So what I'd like to explore just really briefly in, uh, in our time together in this session is what it means to be in tune or what it could mean to be in tune with God's beautiful world. Uh, what does it mean to live a beautiful life? So there are three movements uh, to the rest of the session. First, what's beauty? What do I mean by beautiful? Uh, second, how does beauty lead us to goodness, uh, lead us to a life that is good? Um, and third, what could that look like? So let's take these one at a time. And first, uh, we'll be a little bit philosophical and talk about what we mean by beauty. Um, so in classical thought, there are three transcendentals, truth and goodness and beauty. And one way that we can think about the transcendentals is that these are three undying longings of the human heart. They are three attributes of God and that they are three universal properties of created uh, reality. Another way we can break it down is in terms of uh, the mind's longing for truth, the will's longing for goodness, and the heart's longing for beauty. So why do you believe P? Well, because it's true. You believe it because it's true. Uh, why choose X and not Y? Well, because uh, it's good. And then why love Z? Well, because it's beautiful. Um, so the domain of metaphysics and epistemology is about truth. The domain of ethics is Ethics is has to do with beauty uh, and the beautiful. So one other sort of philosophical piece here, um, I'm sure there are a few people maybe who are sort of interested in, in the way that these are all connected, is that we have a relationship between these three transcendentals, which go something like this. That God, of course, is the source of reality. Reality is what God has defined, and reality is what dictates truth. Uh, truth is how we judge between what is good and what's bad. Um, and then goodness is how we distinguish between uh, what's, what's true beauty and false beauty. So beauty is defined by goodness. Goodness is defined by truth. Truth is defined by reality. And reality is defined by God. That's the way that it sort of works. Um, but when it comes to our experience of the world, usually our order, the order is reversed. So we are led into truth by its goodness. And we are led into goodness by its beauty. Uh, so that means the imagination is essential to consider when we talk about spiritual formation because Christ has to capture our imagination and not just our intellect so that we see this truth as beautiful and as desirable and as something that we actually are attracted to moving towards and not just something that is sort of bare facts existing in space. Uh, so to live well is to respond to reality, uh, to a beauty that is good and grounded in truth. So that's the way that those things connect. Uh, it's interesting, there is this philosopher named Immanuel Kant, and he wrote this massive volume on truth, on what we know and how we know it. And then he wrote a smaller volume on goodness, and then he wrote a really slim volume on, on beauty. Um, and then a theologian came along named Hans, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and he said, the order was reversed. And so he wrote seven volumes on beauty, and then five on goodness, and then three on truth. So he said, this is the way that we actually experience the world. This is the way that we should talk about it. And this is one of the things that he says in the very first volume. He says, we no longer dare to believe in beauty, but our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness. And she, beauty, will not allow herself to be separated and banned from her two sisters without taking them along her, with herself in an act of mysterious vengeance. Meaning if you lose beauty, you also lose goodness and truth. Uh, we can be sure that whoever sneers at her name as if she were the ornament of a bourgeois past, whether he admits it or not, 
can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. So Balthazar's point is that if we neglect beauty, if our desire and the light is not engaged by the truth and goodness that we find, then we've cut ourselves off from the fullness of our created humanity and God's created world. Because imagination, which gives us the gift of apprehending beauty, is one of God's uh, greatest gifts. So when I talk about beauty or when I think about beauty, I usually talk about three words, excellence, elegance, and electricity. Um, excellence, elegance, and electricity. And what I mean by that is that we take delight and in things that are done well, things that are done with excellence uh, and skill and care. And we take delight in things that are elegant, that are uh, have a, 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 one, a wonderful relationship of the parts to the whole, that they are proportional. Uh, there's a marriage of form and function. Each part contributes to the whole. And we take delight in things that crackle of what we might call electricity, uh, the electricity of connection. You have an aesthetic experience and it feels, uh, it feels electric. Perhaps it, it evokes your tears. I heard a sermon like that this morning, a sermon that, that evoked my tears. There is an electricity, a, a space in which uh, I encountered more than just uh, words, uh, but actually presence. And so that's the thing about aesthetic uh, experience or aesthetic uh, encounters is that it implies some sort of participation, a taste and see that God is good, right? God's world demands more than just our intellectual assent. It requires our participation. Uh, if a piece of art means that you have to, to experience it, you have to play along with it, you have to enter into the world of the artist, so too if the world is God's art, that means that it requires us to enter in, to taste, to see, uh, and to play along. Uh, so to participate in works of beauty means that we recognize the claim that they make on us about the world and about the way the world is and about the way that we should be too. In other words, works of art or beauty are meant to inflame the imagination, but also make a claim on our lives. Let me give you an example from a poem. This is a poem by Rilke. And... Um, yeah, I'll just read it. Um, I, I love this poem. Uh, this is about the archaic. So he, he, this is about a, a piece of sculpture that all you have is the torso, no arms, no legs, no head. All you have is, is this torso. And so he writes this poem reflecting on this, on this piece of art. And he says, we cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit. And yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside like a lamp in which his gaze now turned to low gleams in all its power. Otherwise the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise the stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not from all the borders of itself burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you you must change your life. And it's really that last sentence, if you missed everything else leading up to that, uh, that gets me. Um, you must change your life. A truth, goodness, and beauty, all of those things make a claim on us, but beauty feels, is the most powerful thing that we feel of those three. Uh, and for that reason, it's also the most difficult to distinguish between counterfeits and that's the reason why we need to talk about it. And we need to have criteria for distinguishing between because beauty makes a claim on our life. It, it wants us to do something. It wants us to respond. Uh, if this beautiful thing is in the world, then what does that mean for us?
And so this leads me then to the second um, question of what does it mean to connect beauty and goodness? So how does uh, experiencing beauty uh, or experiencing beautiful life pull us towards the good, pull us towards a life that is, is truly good? Um, and I have three points on this. And the first one is, is simply this, um, is that creativity um, in response to beauty is inescapable. As humans, we are inescapably creative in the same way that we are inescapably uh, involved in theology, <laughs> um, in discourse about ultimate things and about God. So if you ignore theology, you still have a theology, uh, but it's just bad theology or incoherent theology. And similarly, if you ignore aesthetics, you will still have an aesthetic, uh, but uh, you will still be invested in making a life. Uh, but it might, again, be incoherent or fail to resonate with what you say you believe. Uh, in fact, a lot of times when we think about developing a community, the way the conversation has tended to go is like this. Well, you first need to give people basic survival skills, and then you need to give them education on practical training, uh, like a job. And then only then, sort of the icing on the cake is to teach people about the arts or teach people aesthetics or teach people about beauty. Um, and while that makes sense on one level, the reality is that people are always already engaged in making a beautiful life. They are already engaged in taking whatever situation they've been given and seeking to make it more beautiful, seeking to make whatever small space you have. So during the pandemic, you know, you're, you're restricted to 600 square feet or 700 square feet. You've done whatever you can to make that space as hospitable as you can, to make that space as livable as you can. That's what we as humans naturally do. In fact, one of the things that people who work in refugee camps have found is that you can discern the health of a refugee camp by how children play. Uh, because the desire to play with possibilities to seek a more fruitful life, to engage our imaginations, is something we can't help but do uh, unless we despair of our very lives. We can't avoid this aesthetic dimension to life. And so whenever we think about building community, you have to think about aesthetics and beauty because people are already using their creativity. You have to think about what is going to engage people's desire and delight. You can't wait until later to think about it. It's not icing on the cake. It's very fundamental to who we are. So as this theologian, William Dernis says that people seek to create beauty and to make something of their lives, not because they are educated or economically privileged, but because they are created to reflect God. And since symbolic practices are fundamental to human flourishing, any project of human betterment will seek to appreciate and celebrate the aesthetic impulse that is already present in the community. Uh, and that's what I would say, especially with apologetics. What are the aesthetic things that people are already doing? What are the ways they're already engaged in trying to make their life more beautiful? Um, so the second point here is this idea of what I would call radical decentering. And what I mean by that is that a true experience of beauty um, puts us in a place of wonder. Uh, it takes us out of the center and makes us look at something else. Uh, so you could compare, for example, the, the, the beauty, the counterfeit beauty that you find on the cover of a magazine, an airbrushed beauty that is illusory and deceptive. Maybe it makes you question yourself or it makes you think about yourself. It deprives you of hope and joy. But the true experience of beauty, if you've ever experienced a piece of music, for example, uh, it opens you up. It unlocks a desire uh, to be better, to, to know more, to love more, to move towards other people. Um, Simone Weil says that beauty calls us to give up our imaginary position at the center. 
And if we have a true experience of beauty, it doesn't lead us to want to consume the beautiful thing, but to actually be generous in the way that we live in response to it. And this is the third point, um, this idea of what I call reciprocal generosity. Uh, because when you have an experience of beauty, you feel like you've been given a gift. And when you've been given a gift, the natural response to that is to also want to give a gift uh, to somebody else. Um, a generous sharing, uh, a reciprocity. In fact, one philosopher says that when we have an experience of beauty, it, it creates in us this urge to protect it or to act on its behalf. Uh, this sense of a heightened uh, care and attention to the world. Uh, what the arts do or what poetry does is it teaches us how to pay attention. It teaches us how to notice what's going on around us. Uh, Elaine Scarry, who's a philosopher, says, it's as though beautiful things have been placed here and there throughout the world to serve as a small wake-up call to perception, spurring lapsed alertness back to its most acute level. In other words, far from making us inattentive, beauty trains our powers of attention to notice things that we might have missed, but not just to notice them, but also to be willing to act on their behalf, to care for the world, because the world is full of beautiful things. Um, always moved by this thing that happened a few years ago when the cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris caught fire. And all the people could do, all the French people could do was watch it as it burned, um, helpless to do anything about it. And in the secular country, but with very religious roots, they began to sing these old French hymns. Um, they had this religious response to protect it, to care for it, to act on its behalf. And it makes me think again, to make this as practical as possible, one of our greatest artists, Van Gogh, uh, who said, I feel there is nothing more truly artistic than to love people. So what is he saying? He's saying that the same care that's required as an artist, the attention to detail, the care, the contemplation, that's gonna be required if we're gonna actually love well the people who are in our lives. It's a sort of artistic way of life, a creative way of life. Uh, and if it doesn't lead us to attention for people, uh, attention for the world that's been entrusted to our care, then something has gone wrong. So it leads us to this sort of reciprocal generosity where we're seeking to, to give a gift as we've received. Uh, finally, what might this look like? Uh, now, it's obviously going to look differently for, uh, for all of us, depending on what situation we're in and depending on what's been entrusted to us. But one of my favorite examples is from this movie. Groundhog Day. I don't know if you've seen this movie. I encourage you to see it if you've not seen it. It's from uh, I think the 90s, maybe. Um, but it stars Bill Murray, and he is a weatherman, and he gets stuck in time. He gets stuck in the same day and has to live the same day over and over again, and it happens to be Groundhog Day. And I like the movie for two reasons. First, uh, because it's hilarious. Uh, it's Bill Murray at his best. Uh, thanks for the thumbs up, by the way, Steve. And second, uh, it's also a story of a person's quest to find an authentic existence, to find out what sort of a life really matters. And he's really sort of trying to, uh, to get it right, to get this life right. He gets these numerous do-overs, right? And so at first he's, I'm going to spoil it a little bit for you, sorry. Um, but at first he's confused and disoriented and then he realizes he can take this to his advantage so he can break the law, he can go to jail, and he wakes up the next morning and everything's reset. He can throw all caution to the wind, so he overeats, uh, he kidnaps the ground, he does all sorts of crazy things uh, because there's no consequences to any of his actions and the world is his playground. But after a while, that becomes boring. 
and that leads him to a place of despair. And so then he tries to take his life in multiple ways, but he continues to wake up every morning with a day reset. Finally, he uses his knowledge of the day's events to help people, but then he realizes that he can't possibly help everyone who needs his help, and then every night the day resets. What he does in the present has no real connection to the past or the future. It just doesn't matter. Every day just happens, and it happens again and again and again. Now, I resonate with that, and probably all of us do, especially after 18 months of COVID, the sense that the same day is happening again and again and again. Um, and we might not literally be living the same day over and over again, but we often feel that we are caught between a past that we cannot change and a future that we cannot control. Everybody is in that situation. Believers, non-believers, we're all sort of in that Groundhog Day, right? And if that's true, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Um, so our society offers us all of these possibilities, uh, so many options, so many little stories, so that we have this permanent identity crisis. We just spend our lives feeding on technology, uh, Facebook, Instagram, we snap, we surf, all of these disconnected things. Um, and there's no larger story to bind all the pieces together. And so Groundhog Day resonates with us because um, even if we don't live the same day over and over again, it seems like we're stuck in the mundane. Life can seem really boring. Um, and we try to find ways to transcend the everyday and to live extraordinary lives. Uh, without saying too much about uh, the ending of Groundhog Day, I'll just say that he gets it right um, in some way by selflessly committing himself to others. Um, his redemption comes as he realizes that his existence is not just for himself, but a matter of devotion to others, where he's not trying to manipulate them, but is just trying to generously love them. This is how he transcends the everyday and makes his life extraordinary. Now, the truth is, uh, we don't have the luxury, I guess luxury, if you want to call it that, of living the same day over and over again. So he learns to speak French and he learns to uh, play the piano and he learns to sculpt ice because he has 30 or 40 years of the same day over and over again. But we also have this time, this gift of time, this gift of days that are given to us. And just as he maybe took 30 or 40 years to become someone worth being, so too making a beautiful life is not something that just happens at once by force of will. It's the result of practice, like playing an instrument, like playing a sport. Uh, it's the result of care. It's the result of putting in time every day, offering to the Lord something that's beautiful or seeking to offer to the Lord the small things that we do every day uh, so that we can become someone who's worth being. Um, and this is sort of the gift economy uh, that fuels, I think, the making of a beautiful life is that gratitude leads us to generosity, which leads us to generativity. Gratitude, the sense that the world is beautiful. It's broken, but it's beautiful because it's made by God and it's filled with beautiful things and beautiful people made in God's image. Uh, and how is it that I get to live in this world? with eyes and ears and all of these beautiful things around me? And why am I allowed to live in this world with so many beautiful things? That's, that's that spirit of gratitude, of wonder. God, I don't know how many days I have, but all the days I have, I say thank you for every breath that I have, um, because this is the art, this world is the art that you've given to me. Um, and then that leads us to this posture of generosity, the desire to share with others, uh, to say, I, you know, the same reason when we go uh, to a beautiful place, we say, oh, I wish my loved ones were here to see this. Or maybe we try to capture it with, with a camera uh, or a video because we know 
instinctively that the best things in life are meant to be shared. Um, and then when we move from, from the space of generosity to generativity, where we try to make something of the world, where we try to give something back um, in our work, in our art, uh, in whatever it is that God's given to us. And I think the main thing that matters here uh, when, it, when we talk about making a beautiful life, uh, living a beautiful life, is the posture, uh, the posture of gratitude and generosity. You know, I said, my students don't think that they are creative and they don't think that they're imaginative. And I think what they mean is they don't think they're artistic. Uh, they're not going to work as professional artists. And that's true of 99% of us is that we are not going to get our living from, from, from artistic vocations. Uh, but being creative, being imaginative, living an aesthetic life, that's your birthright as a person made in God's image. And uh, how you pursue that matters. I always say, you know, um, especially in our culture today, there is this sort of, and I know, especially in San Francisco, um, this desire to pursue authenticity and um, originality. And if we just pursue originality and authenticity for its own sake, trying to say things like no one has ever said it or do things like nobody else has ever done or be the first ones to do it, um, then that leads us to the sort of what I call hipster elitism, uh, where you are trying to, you know, distinguish yourself from everybody else by how different you are, how creative you are, how imaginative you are. Uh, whereas when you just pursue obedience, a faithfulness to the callings that God has on your life, and that this is pursued in a posture of love, of self-giving love, uh, that leads to a servant creativity where uh, you think, well, what are the ways that I can bless this person? What are the ways I can bless my community? What are the ways I can bless my church? What are the ways I can bless my, my neighbors? Uh, what are the ways I can um, seek to show them the beauty of the world that, that, that they live in, the beauty of the God that, that I serve. Uh, it means that you're not really thinking about yourself, right? Uh, you're thinking about others and thinking about how you can bless them. And so your work is offered in the spirit of the gift. As one who has received a gift, uh, you are seeking then uh, to give a gift to others always. Uh, and really that's a, that's a sharing in divine generosity. Generosity is, is sharing in, in what God has already done. Uh, there's this guy I like, I'm almost done now, uh, and he says that uh, it's only the uncultivated imagination that will amuse itself where it ought to worship and work. And it sends us from the loftiest representations to do the commonest duty of the most wearisome calling in a hearty and hopeful spirit. So the imagination is not about distraction. It's not about evading your ordinary responsibilities, but infusing those ordinary responsibilities, those ordinary tasks uh, with extraordinary passion and purpose and love um, that requires imagination and that requires in turn um, a recognition of gift of the gift of God and I think that's the logic that's going on in Psalm 19 uh, where a recognition of the beauty of the world around us uh, leads us then to look to scripture to teach us more about this world so that we don't misidentify it or misname it to see what God says about it um, and then that leads us to a sense of inadequacy uh, that I'm out of tune. My life is out of tune. My life is not coherent with this beauty that I found in the world. And then that finally leads us to sort of uh, an offering of ourselves and saying, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, may the life I live, the life I practice every day, uh, may that be pleasing to you. Um, and that, again, gives you the sense when you think of God as a judge uh, we almost always just think about it in the judicial sense, but there's also this aesthetic sense, isn't there? Uh, a, a, a judge 
of a performance almost uh, to say how beautiful was this performance? How, how fitting was it? Um, did it elicit desire and delight in those who saw it? Um, I think that's part of the Christian calling as, as well. So um, that's the content I have, and I'm happy uh, at this point. I know it's probably like drinking out of a fire hydrant a little bit, uh, but happy to uh, take, some, take some questions uh, from anyone who has them. I don't have a question, but uh, with the in, interesting to see the picture of the, the the art area with the no arm, no leg. That picture it kind of reminds me to see that Nick, you know, that real person was a Nick. I, I forgot the last name that 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 he was born in. Uh, you know, no arm, no leg. Do you know that person? That and he traveled all over the world to. Oh yeah, you're thinking of Nick Vujacic, right? Yeah, yeah. he's an Australian, right? He's yeah, Australian. yeah. I saw him in an airport. Actually, I saw him in Los Angeles airport one time. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He has amazing testimony. Yeah, he. Uh, I I always you know use on YouTube to see some spiritual you know things, and he went one time to the uh, one of the state's prisons to witness to the prisoners. You know, like. Wow, they really have a good organization. They have all the you know people white wear in the white prisoner form and uniform, and and they really listened to him mm. and ended up at the end of the um, the sharing. And a lot of people went out to you know from the prisoner went out to you know the witness that they want to accept that. Yeah, that was real powerful too. I mean, and. Yeah. and when with his character, you know, he was so really depressed in the beginning, but then the God really, he said, God really used him to go over the world to, to witness. So that is, and then with the way he performed on the stage and, and really touch a lot of people that, you know, that, that picture reminds me. <laughs> yeah, that's a really great example of a beautiful life, I think, too, and how, you know, sort of just external beauty. Um, is not deep enough compared to the sort of beauty of, of soul that, that he manifests. There is a movie which you might be able to find online called Butterfly Circus. He stars in it. He is the, um, um, the main character. And it's, it's, uh, it's a short film. I think it's about 20 minutes long. Uh, but yeah, if, if you have a chance to watch Butterfly Circus, um, I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures of, of church, of what a church is, is meant to be. Um, so yeah, Butterfly Circus, that's the name of it. If, if I, I haven't looked for it in a while, but um, you could probably find it. And it stars Nick Vujicic. And uh, it, that will draw together some of the things we've been talking about. Yeah. And also, you know, we might, when I see those uh, video, I, I really uh, appreciate, you know, God give Nick the good wife and she really uh, take good care of the family. And so that he could concentrate to, you know, and have children too. So that's the amazing part. <laughs> they have yeah. two children. So the wife is really, uh, you know, when I see it, wow, she really sacrificed herself. To, to me, sacrifice, maybe to her is a love, right? <laughs> to her is mm -hmm. a love. So, you know, the family, really good uh, good testimony uh, for me. So yeah, I, thank you. I wish I could comment it to him. 
I don't know how to comment on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The wife, you know, the supporting of the wife and find a good wife is with the, with his uh, status is not easy, but yet God provide all the goodness to him. That's that's. I get an impression out of it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Donna. Hi, Justin. Uh, my name is Stanley, and I'm a graphic designer. So I come from an area where I do have thought about aesthetics a lot and thought about design a lot. And, and I see a lot of how people will think design, art is just uh, making things pretty, it is just yeah. ornamental, like that quote said. And um, they don't see it as. Uh, you know, making things, making life better, beauty, it could be make, making life better. They just think about prettiness. Uh, and in this world, I think we can see a lot of things where it is, uh, the pursuit of beauty seems to be very self-centered, whether it's putting on makeup or taking a picture of the Grand Canyon and saying, it's, you know, taking pride in that picture more than just being there, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, I think also in this age, I think some there's some aspects of people just being good, and then people recognizing that goodness, the act of goodness as beauty. Like, uh, like one example would be like John Krasinski's "Some Good News." Yeah, I mean it's a very magnanimous act, but it's not pretty. He's using kids' art for his graphics. He's not doing it really slick. Yeah, but he's making a big difference. And it's touching people's heart. And that's creative, creative beauty and a useful beauty. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a really helpful comment, especially from somebody uh, who's who's doing art. He's making art on a regular basis. And um, yeah, there's a great book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. Um, he's sort of a, a philosopher and cultural critic. And he talks about how art um, exists simultaneously in a market economy, but also in a gift economy. And, um, but he says it, it can live without the market economy. So you can buy and sell art. You know, I buy and sell art. There's a piece of art I just bought from a local artist here. Um, but, um, you know, he, he used to put food on the table for his family, right? Uh, but art can exist without a market economy, but it can't exist if there's no gift. Um, because what makes art, at least this, this, this guy argues, what makes art art is the spirit of the gift that it's, it's offered in. That it's not just done to make money. It's not done just to sort of pay the bills, but it's actually done to add, contribute something to the world, um, to make a generative space where uh, somebody will, you know, see something or, or, or feel something. Um, and I think that that's, that's, there's so many applications to that when it, when it comes to um, Christian faith, you know, that there are things that we do um, yeah, I mean, all of us have to, to get up and, and make money somehow. We have to put food on the family, uh, on the family table. Um, we have to do the work that we have to do. But what makes it a creative life, an artistic life, or a life that is beautiful is the spirit of the gift in which it's offered, is the recognition of, um, yeah, of that it, something has been given to us, entrusted to us, and now we're trying to do something with what's been entrusted to us to make things better uh for um for ourselves but also for for others so that when others experience it that they then are um continuing on in the spirit of the gift 
And yeah, I think that the best art and the best lives are the ones that are generative. Um, you know, John Krasinski's show has spurred lots of other shows like that, you know, lots of other types of things. Uh, and that's the way that it's supposed to work. It's supposed to live by constant donation, by constant giving. The gift keeps on giving. Um, and that's something that's in scripture. You know, that's not something that starts in aesthetics. That's something that we see as part of the fabric of reality um, is that the gift of God in creation issues forth and all of these gifts that we discover and that we then make through our creativity. Um, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm sort of after is um, I want to learn from people like you, from artists um, and writers and poets about what it means to live a life that's beautiful, a lot, because there's a level of care and intentionality and skill um, and attention um, that I think will help me Live, live the way that God created me to live. That's that's the basic project, I think, in some ways, is what can I learn from, or what can we learn from uh, those who engage their imaginations uh, professionally or those who spend a lot of time um, exercising their imagination? Because it feels like a lot of the times our imaginations are very weak um, and, and underdeveloped and flabby. And um, yeah, and so we're satisfied with less than you know, less beautiful things than, than we could be. Um, I have a question. Um, I was uh, thinking about uh, your uh, concepts when you were talking about uh, God establishing what's truth and truth establishing what's real and the goodness and the beauty part. And I'm thinking, you know, here in San Francisco, um, I, I think we have lost a lot of what's the, the sense of what's true and what's good. It's very, very different than what Christians believe in general. And, and I'm just thinking, you know, how do you sort of like uh, um, live in such a way um, and be relevant at the same time, you know, compared with folks that are around us? Because our values are different, right? So what we feel... Um, or instinctively think is beautiful and, and, and good and true is really um, something, sometimes it might be considered um, evil, um, for example. So, so I'd be interested to see how you sort of like uh, bridge that gap because I feel like this uh, gap is getting wider and wider and it's just hard. Um, I, I work in the medical field. So for example, we talk about um, being loving to folks who are in the LGBTQI lifestyle, that's one thing, right? Um, but sort of like uh, agreeing with them and celebrating that, that's, that's where I draw the line. But uh, at the same time, how, how do you sort of like uh, live a beautiful life in front of folks that believe otherwise and think you're the enemy? And uh, yeah, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Wow, yeah, so those are about four different of million dollar questions that the church is asking um, right now. And um, yeah, maybe if I can kind of track with it a little bit. Um, the first thing I would say is um, we meet people where they are, you know, um, and especially you're exactly right that we've sort of left truth behind and we've left goodness behind. And so, and so there's sort of like this diminished beauty is that that's all we have, right? And so the response that some people are trying to have is, well, let's get back to truth. Let's double down on truth. 
Um, and it just kind of jumps over the place where people are. If, if this is where these are the facts on the ground, right? You know, maybe we wish that we had a better situation where people cared more about the truth. But um, if people only are sort of moving in this aesthetic realm, that's where we have to start too. That's part of the conviction of where I'm where I'm at. But I'm also convinced that because these things are connected, because we're not talking about three different things, but one thing that is, you know, so reality is beautiful, good, and true, right? That God, you know, his attributes. And so that means that if we stay long enough, we will be, feel the gravity towards goodness and the gravity towards truth because it's God's beauty, right? It's, it's, it's the gift that he's given. Um, and so I think that that means in, in one sense that people need to feel the thinness of, you know, the life that they've chosen um, to live apart from God uh, you can't just come from the outside with a critique. It has to be felt from the inside. Um, and when you feel that thinness or when you feel that emptiness, that's when you start to look for a wider story, a bigger story that is more um, coherent, I guess, for lack of a better word. And so I think that that means being willing to enter and stay and listen and just be present, be a non-anxious presence uh, for a long time. And allowing allowing the Lord and allowing the Spirit to move and to uh, open eyes, including our own, right? You know that encounter opens our own eyes and not just the eyes of the other person. And so, yeah, I'm not sure how satisfying that is, other than to say that um, if not just all truth is God's truth, but all beauty is God's beauty, uh, if people are really having experiences of beauty, um, and if we are in people's lives with this beautiful presence, there is a natural gravity towards goodness and truth um, that are that are there. Uh, the second thing is I think that yeah that there just needs to be careful apologetic work and apologetic presence. Um, you know, so if people are saying, well, you know, you're evil because of uh, the beliefs that you have, that leads us both to self-examination, but it also leads us to more carefully articulate what it is that we actually believe. And it also, you know, requires us to be friends and to be engaged in the lives of people who disagree with us, who, you know, love your enemies doesn't make sense if you don't have enemies, right? If you don't have people who, who think that your presence is bad, you know, uh, for your city. Um, and someone can make an enemy of you without you retaliating, making an enemy of them, if that makes sense. You know, that's sort of what that Christian ethic means. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure how satisfying that is, um, other than to say that um, our work as the work of an artist is slow work, and it's patient work, and it's careful work, and it's showing up every day in the relationships and spaces where we are, and learning to be present uh, in a non-anxious way um, that doesn't always need to assert itself uh, and insist on its own way. And, you know, as a person with lots of um, very close LGBT friends, um, I'm figuring out as I go along too, you know, um, how do I be present in their lives and, and love them uh, even as a person who does hold a traditional Christian ethic on sexuality. Um, I'm trying to figure that out, you know, and, um, and I think that that sort of, yeah, humility um, is, is required too. I agree with you, um, Dr. Gesson, um, you know, you know when she, when Alan's sharing about this person, uh, you know the LGBT. I feel you know people. God is created them too. You know God give them you know 
you know imagination and thinking you know for that for their lives and and you know they have the right to choose as in the city said you know the law uh but i i would treat them as a a person that got created and and using the uh working relationship to to share the uh you know your point of view it, and also form a good relationship it's not arguing not uh but not judging and not creating a hostile environment but using the life you know our lives that god give us and the gift to us to to listen to them to um uh to wait on god to 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 using your 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 life to um to not to convince but because human cannot convince people only god you know but i think yeah from the bible working out for the bible principle to to see and then appreciate you know like if they have the social activity and then you have the right to the freedom to choose to attend or not to attend you know it's it's up to you but you treat him as a as a another friend as a human being uh as as a life not not the lifestyle i guess i don't know <laughs> you know. alan did you have a follow-up on that um um i think personally uh, the way i've been approaching um uh co-workers has been one of um trying to understand where they're coming from and i feel personally in my field i understand that everybody i think all of us want to be known and be known and be loved for who we are and be accepted right and um and we all have a difference in opinions um sometimes uh, some violent objections over some crucial or um personally defining uh stuff whatever that might be uh what's important uh, to me may not be as important to you, but I think those baseline things uh, in terms of what we all want are pretty similar. And so I think my approach has always been to sort of like, um, I will serve you the best way I can uh, to the best of my abilities. And when I treat somebody in my office, I don't look at you in terms of what your beliefs are, but I look at what your needs are or um, what your what I think you might need. And I kind of point you there and give you that, point out that additional option without sort of like jamming it down your throat. So I, I feel like in general, uh, most of us are not uh, receptive to more this parental approach. Yeah. Oh, this is what you should do because people just choose what they want to do, right? Uh, in general, and I'm not. I, I'm not very similar that way. I, I, I do what I yeah. want. Um, but once we get to the point that there's this felt need of like, oh, I think that I, that I need to do something else more because I'm gonna be um, better, and then that's when people change. Uh, where, where's yeah. where, whether or not this has anything to do with health or uh, a longing deeper. Uh, inside us, I feel that um, once we get there, when people are more receptive and the trust and the relationship is there, then then it, it happens in that context uh, much more effectively than you know what what you said about you know looking at people as uh, brains on a stick, right? Yeah, uh, it's more personal. It's it's more tailored and it's more relevant to them. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. I was thinking about that when you guys were just talking about that, like, I was like, I think the category of imagination and 
not just in the category of artistic expression, but like generate generative self giving kind of categories and like imagining that like, I feel like that's why the LGBTQ community is strong because they're creating like imagine it like they're imagining a community to which our imagination of community has not been satisfying or fulfilling so they're create like because everyone who tells you that they've joined that community or whatever how they express that like they would express it in an imaginative kind of way like this is where i'm getting acceptance love belonging friendship expressions of that whereas we're supposed to be imagining a place with the people of God, which is like salt and light and where there's family and those places where we fail to imagine that like fully, I think is where, we, where people will want like leave or reject um, if they're genuinely trying to wrestle with that. Cause we're not providing a, a community that actually is expressing those things. Uh, so I feel like, anyways, just to say like, giving those the language in the class it's helpful to process that like even for me i was thinking why one thing that we've been doing for like the last eight years has been uh helping just a couple local schools get ready for the school year and i was like it could turn into something that's just like another activity that's on our church calendar but like the original original reason why i had that idea was a, a like an imagination of like imagine if families didn't complain about the schools in the city what would that mean what would that look like and how could we be part of that? That was the original reason why I had that the idea was like, I want to turn the conversation of everyone's complaint about the city and the schools to one where, hey, like it's actually better and it's good and families are flourishing here. And if we could be part of that story of that change, that would be kind of a, a privilege if God could use us that way. So yeah, that's awesome. a category. Yeah, just to help me think through that. It's, it's good. Thanks. Yeah, one other piece I learned from from listening to artists is the relationship of imagination and limits. Um, you know, the imagination needs limits in order in order for our making to flourish. And I think that might be another way into the conversation towards goodness and truth is then we begin to ask, what are the limits that then will mm. focus our imaginative work, focus our creativity, focus our making? You know, I always ask that question for myself because there's so many things I want to do. There's so many things I can do. But, you know, God has given me limits, you know, like um, the family, you know, a wife and, and, and kids that limit me profoundly, but also set me free and focus my creativity in this particular direction. And so one way that we could talk about this uh, in terms of, um, yeah, setting up a church to be creative, both in its witness and its discipleship, is what are the limits that we need um, to focus our creativity, to focus our imagination um, so that we can really yeah, not be trying to do everything. What are the limits for flourishing? What are the limits for imagining the flourishing? And I think, you know, similarly talking to people who are really interested. So yeah, people who are really interested in the imagination don't think they're interested in limits initially. You know, they're like, oh, you're trying to limit my imagination. But then, you know, the more you talk to them, they're like, well, no, actually I do limit myself because I need, yeah, like I need limits to make art, you know, so I'm only going to make it with these materials or I'm going to make it in this time domain. Or I'm going, you know, um, if you just say imagine, that doesn't mean anything. You have to have a limit to the imagination in order for it to do something. And so that might be another way to talk about, okay, then now how do we decide what the limits are on our imagination? How do we decide uh, what limits will actually unleash the most free life? Um, we want limits that are not just limit limitations for limitation's sake, 
the limitations that are actually, um, yeah, in, embedded in God's, yeah, God's dream of, of what human humans could be in Christ. Um, that's 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 another way I think of thinking through it is the relationship of imagination and limits. Hi, Justin. Uh, my name's Tim. I uh, just want to thank you for your lessons. Uh, you know, it was like drinking from a fire hose. But I, <laughs> I think, um, you know, we've, these were recorded, so be able to process them some more. Mm. And um, yeah, I think it'll be, it's been a blessing to all of us. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, my question is, I think my wife, Mandy, and I are planning to uh, teach Sunday school, middle school Sunday school in a month, month or two and wondering how we could um, apply some of your teachings to, to make um, the, the middle schoolers Sunday school experience maybe help in their faith. You know, I guess, um, um, you know, I, I think we had taught that age range in the past and I felt like I put in a fair amount of imagination and effort. I really like to, I really love the Bible. I really hope that it communicate the, some of that passion and and um, you know show them how how God loves them through the Bible, but I really didn't get too much response. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know middle schoolers, especially around here, maybe they don't they don't want to let other people know that they yeah have, have responses so, <laughs> or whatever. But anyway, uh, what 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 do you do you have any advice towards us? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I think that. Part of it is just middle school students. You know, that's that's an awkward age uh, for all of us. And um, you know, I have a middle schooler right now, and uh, so yeah, I'm just trying to figure it out as a parent. Um, so yeah, blessings to you and that work first of all. Uh, but again, I think that I wouldn't necessarily base too much on your perceived response from them. Um, you might think through it in terms of what is their. I I like to say, what's their aesthetic experience of class. You know, um, because we tend to have particular, I mean, I don't know how you teach it, but there are particular ways that we're just used to doing class, Sunday school. And sometimes you're just limited in what you can do, right? Especially if you're over Zoom or something like that. Uh, but, you know, if it feels like school, they settle into a particular mode. You know, it feels like, um, yeah, there's these categories that we have. And so I always think about with my own students, what is their aesthetic experience like and what's that going to point them towards to they're processing this as a lecture or they're processing this as um a sharing time you know what i mean i think that's one of the first questions i'd ask um, it's interesting i can preach a sermon on sunday and then give the exact same content to a class of students on monday and the reception is incredibly different just because of where they're filing it in their mm -hmm. imagination mm -hmm. uh, when, or this is a mode where i'm listening for god's word this is a mode where it's like school and i'm just trying to cram information on them. So that'd be the first thing that I'd say. Uh, the second thing I'd say is um, really taking advantage of storytelling um, and of uh, the parts of scripture that engage the imagination, especially. Um, all scripture does that, obviously, but certain parts of scripture do more than others. Um, and so the narratives and the stories of scripture allow us to enter into the story. Uh, you know, there's, like I said, there's a form of Ignatian prayer. Uh, it's called imagined prayer in the literature where you are sort of listening to a gospel story and imagining yourself in the scene. 
And um, it says, okay, well, what do you see around you? What, you know, what does the air smell like? You know, what is, what do the people look like? And um, exercises like that, if you're comfortable with them, have been shown in studies to actually increase people's um, imaginative sensitivity to God's presence in the world because they're actually exercising their imagination uh, to think about the biblical story. So that then when you read the Bible, it's not just words on the page, but actually you're thinking about those, those details and almost inhabiting the story uh, rather than just hearing it. Uh, so uh, I think that, and then the other thing is um, research has shown that middle school students um, learn by doing um, things more than even by seeing or by hearing. Adults learn by, um, well, we learn from all different ways, but um, especially during middle school, anything you can practice, anything that you can do, uh, get them using their bodies in some way, uh, that tends to embed itself in the imagination. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot more than just kind of hearing, you know, eloquent teaching. So th those are the, the first thoughts I have you know, related to that. But yeah, that's a challenge, you know, for all of us. Um, and yeah, blessings to you on, on that work. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you for that. I heard some training before, like teaching Sunday school, like you, you teaching God's word. And of course, you teach your asset, you know, has a good, um, a good example. So I think teacher has to pray a lot because you know the word has to God's word has to penetrate you now as as a teacher and then we could demonstrate. Um yeah and then technique wise is important too. Uh like you know are they interesting in the format of the teaching you know method or you know ask them you know what do you learn today? You know, I, I'm a more practical person. So if they don't learn anything, then that means that something, you know, it uh, has to be reconsidered about our, our method. Mm -hmm. And important, we have to rely on God to Holy Spirit to teach us and then uh, perform it out of God's uh, way of doing it. So so as a teacher, yeah, we pray a lot. They have to pray a lot yeah. and pray for the lesson. Is the lesson, uh, that particular lesson, you know, uh, taught out today to the to the lesson? You know, what is the, ask them, you know, what do you learn today? If they don't learn anything, then mean something wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thanks, Donna. Are there any other questions for um, Pastor Justin? I know we're, we passed that, we're about past that hour. So maybe yeah. just some final questions that uh, to, to share if you have any in light of the content. Um, this is John here. Um, Justin, thank you so much for your lesson. I think it really is a lot of information to digest. And this is a little bit more, um, um, not a question, but just a, just a reflective. And I think going through your video series of session three, I think what kind of um, hit me was the way how you kind of broke down on the different types of apologetics in terms of how you broke down the responsive apologetics and imaginative apologetics and proactive apologetics and deconstructive apologetics. And I thought that was really good because I think that a lot of times when we do apologetics, I personally tend to kind of focus on answering people's questions. And, you know, from a, from a argumentative perspective, it almost seems like if I can just answer the questions, they have to believe because it's logical, it's reasonable, and it's true, but I realize that a lot of times that doesn't really happen. 
And I think that one thing that when my wife, you know, approaches non-believers, she always shows them her heart that she cares for their eternity. She cares you know, about their soul and she cares about their, you know, their future. And I think that she balances me off quite nicely because I tend to argue with people and try to convince people and she tends to just reach out to them. And I think that the way how you kind of broke down the different type of apologetics kind of, you know, um, was a little bit of an eye opener for me because it made sense. And I think that when you talk about the imaginative way of how we can, you know, reach people, um, it always bring, brings me back to 1 Corinthians 9, 22, you know, where Paul goes to the weak, I become weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I may save some. And I think that, you know, that's such a good verse to always remember because, um, depending on who our audience is, whether they're middle schoolers or whether they're, you know, um, co-workers in the workplace or even the, you know, bystander at Starbucks, I think each person receives, you know, um, the message, you know, differently. And I think we always have to be mindful and creative in um, you know, reaching out to them. And I think that's what this session has kind of taught me and reinforced that I need to be creative and imaginative and use different, you know, techniques, different you know, skills and different ways of reaching them because each person is reached in a different way. And some people are very logical. Some people are very emotional. Some people are influenced by what they see, lifestyle. Some people are just influenced by just your caring act, your, you know, your love, your concern for them. And I think that we always have to continue to hone on that, um, on that aspect. And a, a second thought, which was, it's, it's a slightly different thought too, is from when you, quoted, I think, um, um, Pascal. And that I thought was actually a really, you know, really interesting quote, because I think that he, uh, he said, men despise religion, they hate it and are afraid of it, afraid it may be true. The cure for this is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive, make good men wish it were true, and then show that it is. And I think that kind of hit a chord because I think that sometimes when we focus on, you know, certain things around the earth, we become, you know, uh, without knowing that a lot of people, the worldview is to save the planet, save climate changes, save, you know, um, 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 social, you know, justice, whatever the rally cry is. And they don't realize that the root of all this is just the sinfulness of man. Um, but it's hard to get them from trying to save the world to understanding where they are relative to the world so that they can see that their, you know, their need for a God. So I think, um, thank you very much. It's a good reminder of how we need to continue to just practice different ways of reaching out to the people around us. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that eloquent summary of the session. I mean, that was very, yeah, very eloquent summary of what I was trying to convey in the previous session. And one other you know, piece I just add to it is, you know, when Wycliffe Bible Translators tries to translate the word of God into different people's languages, they say, we want to translate it into their heart language, the heart language of every culture, because every every culture um, should be able to hear God's word in their heart language. And I think we could just shift that a little bit and say every person should get to hear the word of God in their heart language and so that requires you then being like well what's this person's heart language how do i actually get to their heart and not just to their head um and we have to do both obviously head and heart are connected but um it's helped me whenever i i talk to someone when i when i have a student in my office with doubts i'm thinking what's their heart language how do i speak to their heart um and not just to their 
not just to their head. Because I can answer the question. Um, I can tell them answers at least. Uh, but um, if I miss their heart, then uh, yeah, I'm treating them like a brain on a stick. Again, we, we don't human change people. We ask God to. <laughs> yeah. We have to rely on God. We just throw out right. the message. Any final questions uh, to, to ask Pastor Justin before we end our time together? So the last chances, any questions? Looks like no one's biting. Um, <laughs> well, we just wanna thank you, Pastor Justin. Um, it's, we're actually so glad that we have recorded content because again, this was, it did feel like a, a fire hose uh, in many ways, but it's, it's good that we can be able to chew on it more uh, and to think about our own personal approaches of how we've gone about uh, not even just apologetics, but just engaging in this other half of our, of our being. Uh, of uh, of imagination and what that means to live out a faithful Christian witness uh, as we engage with people. So I want to encourage everyone. I've been able to read um, Pastor Justin's book on the um, reimagining apologetics. It's great. It's probably a more expanded version of what he's shared here. Uh, I want to commend that uh, to you all. It's uh, you can just pick it up via Amazon. Um, I think has all platforms of Kindle, uh, hard copy, and Audible. Um, I've been doing it through Audible. I've been walking around while uh, while someone's reading Justin's book to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, I want to commend that to you. But again, thank you so much for your time, uh, Justin. Really appreciate you creating this space for us to engage with your content as well as just uh, different ways you've been challenging us so that we can be faithful in our Christian walk. Uh, in our as we um, in our in as we submit to Christ and His Lordship, so thank you so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, it's, it's been my pleasure. Uh, feel free to reach out if you have follow up questions. Uh, I do have, um, yeah, platform public platform. You know, Facebook, Twitter, um, and then pjustin dot is it dot com or dot org. Pjustin, I should know my website, shouldn't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let me look it up real quick and I can talk, but that has a lot of my other, you know, a lot of my other pjustin.com. Yeah. Uh, e for pastor, professor, then justin.com. And that has, um, you know, other talks I've given. Um, if you want to know more, <laughs> we're here. We talk about this on podcasts. All of that stuff is there. Um, but yeah, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for, yeah, the gift of your, your attention and presence. That's always a Thank gift. You. So, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Also, thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Pastor. Justin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you.